The word influencer can often be a reductive term used to describe someone whose primary work is solely based on popularity. But for some, creation is a conscious process, one that requires creativity, context, and perspective. After putting in 10 years in the fashion industry, it's become clear that one of the most important skill sets to hone is garnering the trust of readers and the wider industry on and offline. Shinny Park is a multidisciplinary creative and, quote, Janet of all trades. I started following Shinny over a decade ago when I discovered her site, Park and Cube. Since then, Shinny's digital persona and storytelling continues to evolve as her career has taken new shapes and forms. From launching Cube Collective, her digital atelier, to Cubicle, a print biannual that celebrates slow-form storytelling. In this conversation, we speak to Shinny about going from digital to print, breaking through the noise, and how integrity is a key to longevity in the influencer industry and beyond. Here's Shinny on the line. Shinny, thank you so much for joining me today on the Art of Travel podcast. I am so excited to have you as a guest just because I've been following Park and Cube and the chronicles of everything that you've been working on for at least 10 years. It's actually crazy that, you know, it's uh, been going on for 10 years because sometimes I wake up and I'm like, has it been 10 years since (laughs) my embarrassing (laughs) journey on the internet? But thank you for having me. Of course. And first things first, I wanted to get some background. Where are you from? Okay, so currently I'm based in Copenhagen, uh, but I live and work between London and Copenhagen. Uh, I was born in South Korea, in Seoul, and then we moved to Warsaw, Poland, which is where I sort of accidentally grew up, and I went to London to study when I was 19. So I've been in London uh, up until two years ago, which is when I moved to Copenhagen. And what prompted your move from London to Copenhagen? Uh, I want to say weather, but that's a bad answer because I, I got here <laughs> and I'm like, ah, sorry, where's the sun? Um, yeah, we did a Google search. Uh, we, we searched um, average sunlight hours and apparently Copenhagen had more. So we moved here thinking it would be a better life. And we'd been in London for like 12 years by then. So it was I was ready for a new chapter. Um, but yeah, we got here and it turns out the, the sun comes out at 4 a.m., and uh, people don't need sun at 4 a.m. So, yeah, that's why the average sunlight <laughs> hour is longer here. Yeah. It just starts earlier. It starts earlier and it ends later. And you're just like, I don't really need sun at 11 either. <laughs> I, I love that you chose Denmark as an option for places with more sunlight, given that yeah. I, I feel like it's not the obvious choice of country relocation you know like I would think like mm. Spain or so somewhere in the Mediterranean <laughs> so true oh my goodness I'm actually very embarrassed when I say weather was <laughs> like my first and actually it is the yeah it's my um the bane of my existence currently uh but yeah no it was like a half a step out and it was, it's still very chic and very fashion so yeah I just thought maybe instead of doing a full step out we'll just do a half a step and So you've lived in London and now you live in Copenhagen and you're originally from South Korea. What is it like being a third culture citizen? I'm, I guess I'm a third culture kid when it comes to not being of the same culture of of my own parents, but in a sort of a micro level, I guess I learn more work ethics from my South Korean parents. Uh, I take on importance of history perhaps from my time in Warsaw 
And I guess my Bali confidence comes from like my spending my 20s in London. And I think yeah. maybe my style leans towards Scandi normcore now that I'm based in Denmark. A bit of a mixed pot. How would you describe your job title? Yeah, um, a difficult, I, I guess... Maybe maybe it should just be like Janet of all trades or something. <laughs> Janet um, which, of all trades. <laughs> as pretentious as it sounds, it's not really the best thing to be because it means that you're not the master of anything. Like you just you're just curious about everything. I guess maybe I'm a CEO of Curious Cats. I don't know. No, I'm a photographer. I guess um, I do a lot of graphic design in the sense that uh, I don't design a lot, but it's a lot all about problem solving. So mm-hmm. I'm a problem solver, Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> I think too you're also a high level creative director because the things that you produce are pretty much, you know, image and branding too, right? Yes, we do work um a lot of branding and identity work uh, through the company, but I myself I I like I mean, I think maybe I'm a enabler, so I like being bridges and connections to to professionals that I love and connect into the right clients and I think that's why my company is called Cube Collective uh, because I, yeah. I quite like the idea of having collective of professionals but personally I don't I don't think I would call myself a creative director first uh, you know I don't I don't want to be like stoned on the street um, for yeah. Yeah, saying or putting my um, Instagram biography um, yeah actress and <laughs> philanthropist is it because is it because the word creative director has been abused though on Instagram specifically when you know curating outside sourced images has become the the title of being a creative director yeah that's true um I've seen art director a lot but you know to be honest I, I feel like I'm not even at that level just yet of being yeah. a, even a creative director, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, from, from a very industry perspective, uh, you know, being a director of anything means that you've, you've managed people under you and managed projects and taken it from nothing to success, right? I feel like yeah. I haven't done enough of that in a, in a setting that allows me to actually professionally call myself creative director. But you're totally right. I think it, the, the term is uh, being thrown around quite uh, loosely these days um, but maybe it's just you know up to us well you know older cats to to tell <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean you too are I mean I, I've been following you for decades Olivia how old are you now <laughs> <laughs> I I'm 27 oh I'm jealous <laughs> I'm jealous but I feel like I've been following you for like at least 10 years I mean I'm generation two for sure but yeah we're the the OG <laughs> You know, when did you start your blog and can you tell me a little bit about your career evolution? The blog was opened in 2008 and I was 22. I was second year in uni. I was bored. It it was literally a product of procrastination. I had to do a deadline and instead of doing that, I did a blog. Um, but up to that point, I always had a blog. I was, was online. I was on, you know, live journal. If you remember live journal, what was it? Not my face, (laughs) my. My MySpace. 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 <laughs> but you know what? We there should be a new a new app called MyFace because that's really all we're posting nowadays anyways, Isn't right? That Selfies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> MyFace. Oh hey, I could add that to my Instagram um, bio. CEO, CEO of MyFace. Of my face. <laughs> How about we do co-creators of MyFace? Yes, I love that. It all started okay. here. <laughs> exactly. Right now, here. 
Um, yeah, no, I, I was always online. So, and by the time I was 22, I was into like, you know, shoes were the new boys. So it was almost natural that I, um, yeah, opened something fashion related. But by then I, I couldn't afford anything. So it was all about DIY. So my first ever post that kind of, kind of, when I say kind of, it, not five people watched uh, my blog post, but 50. <laughs> yeah, one of my DIYs went out into the internet and it kind of like kicked off the the blog. Yes, and it was uh, an Alexander Wang studded bag DIY. So that's, that's my first ever foray into the fashion world. <laughs> but I, I love I love Park and Q because I remember looking at it even 10 years ago and your graphics were so beautiful and your writing too was really great it really balanced you know you had this balance between aspirational but also self-deprecating humor hmm. and you had beautiful images, of course, but the fact that you didn't take yourself seriously was such a wonderful breath of fresh air. That's so funny because I, I think I took myself way too seriously back then because I think it was almost like a space that didn't need that much maybe professionalism or, or you know, give a lot of Fs uh, or shits. Do we swear on this podcast? <laughs> yes, you're allowed to swear. Oh my <laughs> this is my sole podcast right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I gave one too many fucks, really, uh, doing Parking Cube. And I think that kind of maybe pushed the boundaries in a way that it, it uh, piqued a lot of interest. But I remember being very exhausted by it all uh, just before launching Cubicle um, because I had put a little too much into it. At, at the end of the day, maybe I should be thankful that I did. Um, There's this huge transformation of how we as, you know, content creators create and consume content. And mm. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what the shifts have been, because as you said, like running a blog was actually so much work now mm. that I think about it. And now, you know, 10 years later or a little bit over 10 years later, sometimes I struggle to find time to even post an interesting Instagram image when before mm. I was logging in five hours every day after school to write copy and edit images and also put them in a in a sequence that would have like a nice flow. And mm. there was so much more effort put into creating your story and now totally it's really right. just about like three second snackable content. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right. There's been a major shift and I think it's just the shift of concentration and also, like you said, snackable content. Now is the, the era of snackable content and like holding on to like even a, a morsel of attention span <laughs> um, as you scroll so quickly by the uh, by the wall, like on, on your app. But before it was almost like you were a destination and people came to actually spend five, 10 minutes with you. So yes. it was almost like a different expectation, I suppose. And you curated and created for a different expectation. Yes. And the irony too is, um, I think in that era, we were all doing it for free. There was no monetary mm, financial so benefit. And we were logging in like five hours a day of of our weekend, of resharing yeah. our weekend or some adventure we've had. And so yeah. I, I noticed that, you know, last year you published or you released a book. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and what was that process like going from digital to print? 
Well, Olivia, if anyone knows this, it's you. Uh, your book is the most beautiful, literally. Like I was holding it. I'm like, I need to go back to LA. Like this is like <laughs> the soul of, of LA as a, as a city, but also just a home for you. Um, but yeah, like it, there's the tactile aspect of a book is something that I think was magic for me because at the end of the day, whether we logged three seconds into Instagram making content or, or uploading content or five hours into a blog post, at the end of the day, you don't really have anything to, to call your own touchable, like something tangible. Um, so at, when, when I held my book, I, I just, it, I just had like this emotional wave where I'm like, oh my goodness, I, this is something I can touch and, and can sit on my bookshelf for, for years and years, if not a lifetime. And that's something that I really loved graduating to, having spent like, let's say, 10 years of doing a blog. And then at the end of it, just having something to show for, something to say, hey, this is my 10 years of, of learning and being and communicating online. And this is the final product. And what inspired you to work on the book? I uh, multitude of things. I actually called it a metamorphosis as such, which which is interesting because you you shed the shell right in metamorphosis. A um, exuve, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, sheds its sort of shell before it becomes a a pretty little butterfly. Um, but yeah, I, I always found it to be kind of like a shedding of the shell of of maybe maybe it's all also a coming of age. But I really wanted to to work with people just to say, hey, my time of 10 years of having myself as a muse is over now. And I will now turn the lens back to turn the lens to someone else who deserves to have their stories told. So that was definitely like the major in inspiration where we wanted to tell, retell the stories of uh, visual heroes and visual artists you know, like Guy Bourdain or gosh, horsed, p-horsed, all of these visual uh, champions that we, we, yeah. we uh, you know, attribute current culture to. So yeah, Cubicle is definitely a, an exploration of all of that. What is Cubicle and when did you start it? Technically, Cubicle is a biannual hardcover book series. We started off as a magazine, but we decided we didn't really want to be something too fleeting. So we actually decided very last minute to make it hardcover. And now it's set to be a, a book series. And Cubicle, the name kind of derives from Park and Cube. Uh, Cubicle is literally a, a space for us. So it's sort of a working space, uh, not a toilet cubicle, <laughs> although that is the <laughs> running joke in the company. Um, sometimes we also say lubicle because yeah, lube collective is, <laughs> is my uh, personal account. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Cubicle is a storytelling platform. Yeah. It's, it's as simple as that, to be honest. And I just want it to be filled with soul. Like I want it to slow the internet down. I want it, it to be less snackable, a lot more digestible in terms of nourishment. But I, I couldn't figure out a way to, to slow it all down. Like maybe we're getting old or maybe we're just jaded with the industry. But it just felt like the, this content was being put up for the sake of content, not yeah. for the sake of messaging or storytelling. 
yeah, I, I just thought maybe there is a, is a better way of um, re-triggering young creatives to, to think of the world a different way. I actually think that it's really timely. I mean, I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is really forced mm -hmm. us to slow down and ask us to pause and reflect. And I think the world is moving in this hyper, hyper quick pace that was really, really just unattainable, mm -hmm. not only for the planet or like environmental impact, but just on our bodies as well. So true. I mean, you know this because you've been working in the fashion industry for mm -hmm for some time that how many of our trips would sometimes ask us to fly halfway across the world for two or three days yeah. and then come home. And, you know, when you're on the ground, you hit the ground running and you just leave that trip feeling really depleted. And mm. I'm wondering, has there been any revelations for you at this time? Well, exactly like you said, we I slowed down and reflected more. I actually... I love the fact that we could we could focus more on passion projects at the time of um, yeah just staying home and being on technical lockdown. But I, I love the fact that everyone sort of reflected the industry itself ref reflected. Now I love that it just feels a bit I guess it's not the best word but tone deaf if we we kind of do things the way we did it before. And I love that it's so apparent right now. It was so hard to convince that it was not the best thing to do before the the whole pandemic. But right now it's just you just need to read the room, right? That that's all it takes to know that aha. Uh -huh, okay, so so the things that we did before was actually not the best way of doing things. Yeah, and I, and I quite like that right now that the industry is going through this revelation of, of revising how they do their fashion weeks and fashion shows and, and presentations and press trips and such. And what was fashion week like this season for you? I, I really loved all the creativity that happened behind showing something digitally. I love that people went to moving image, like the cinema industry, but there were also like very web focused uh, presentations, which is awesome because you know how we, we come from web, don't we? We had a sort of a home sweet home situation with our blogs. And, um, you know, we, we had something that we could call uh, our own space, but after the the rise of apps and things like that, I, I feel like the emphasis on web development has really slowed down. And I really like that it was kind of pulled back into the, the whole sphere of, of web because it's such a powerful medium. There's so much you can do on web. There's so much storytelling and technology behind web and web design and development. So that was really interesting. I personally loved that. I loved not seeing just everyone and anyone just being in Paris, for instance, and going to showrooms. And there's a lot of noise. There was a lot of noise and you couldn't really find your way through the noise sometimes. And for this one, I, I really liked that I only went and saw brands and also just engaged with brands that I really was interested in and have a relationship with. And I think that's just bringing everything back to the core where it's all about it's all about communication and relationship building at the end of it all. I mean the fashion industry really is a people's industry. Yeah. Back to back to basics, back to relationships. Yeah, and back to just being a little more um conscious with with conscious, how we yeah. yeah. And so much more intentional. I love yeah, that, that. Intentional. Good word. It really it really does feel like that we came back to the core, especially when it comes to Fashion Week, where you really got to engage with the brands that you had 
long-term sustained conversations and relationships with, which should be how it is all the time, right? Because it's like, absolutely, yeah. it does make you question like, why, why did I run around packing my schedule where, you know, you would basically fast for, for two weeks in Paris because there was this massive pressure cooker of trying to do as much as you can when the entire industry is also trying to do as much as they can. So true. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And what was it like being in Copenhagen? Because I know Copenhagen is one of the few cities that have always been on the forefront of sustainability and I guess more conscious production. Did you did you attend any shows? Um, I personally, when Fashion Week in Copenhagen rolled over, it was just out of the the official lockdown period. So I personally didn't go to many shows, but I know there were a lot of physical shows. Um, but I did go to one show and it was, it was, it almost felt like we were back in like 1940s, uh, Chanel, um, little boudoir type showing situation where, um, I think this brand usually hosts like 500 people, uh, for their show and they only had 50 this time. And it felt like you were just in someone's living room, um, looking at clothes and yeah, there was, there was all these like precautions made. I'm not sure how effective it was to be honest. I mean, yeah. do we know, like, do we, do we know anything in, about this, you know, virus at this point? Um, but yeah, it was, it was still nice that they were trying to find a way around it. They're, they're still Danish brands. I think they have sustainability in mind, but there's also a very strong sort of emphasis on community and, and being there, you know, how Hygge is, is actually a, a very social term as well, mm-hmm. because it means that you're kind of nourishing your own bubble. So sure, it means that you're cozy within like the four walls of your house and you have a candle lit or whatever, but it's also like nourishing the people that you know and uh, you constantly uh, communicate with them and um, really be in their lives constantly. So that, that I really felt like I was a family here in Copenhagen, which is yeah, really nice to feel after you know a long time of being in the fashion industry, feeling like an outsider, especially coming from like a blogging background. Yeah, and so how is your lifestyle different in Copenhagen versus how it was in London? In London, like you said, I accepted press trips and it was when you hit the ground, you run, right? And it was literally three, four press trips every every week. And I, I did that because I could. It was so, such an accessible city. I could take on any job in short notice and, and do it. And that was like the MO of being in London, right? I guess it did make sense in my 20s, like early 20s, when I was really trying to build my career and all that. But uh, in Copenhagen, because I'm based sort of one-fourth in London and three-fourths in Copenhagen, I can now push everything onto the one-fourth of being in London and do all my work back-to-back there. So it's a high-pressure, high-intensity type week. And then the three weeks I'm here in Copenhagen, I get to digest that. I get to just work on it, reflect rest physically as well and I really love that lifestyle and this was way before the pandemic as well. Has the pandemic changed the way you view travel? I'm not sure maybe can I ask you this the this question because I'm starting to question the necessity of it all but yeah. you're more from a travel background I feel your your storytelling comes from a more of a travel background what do you think? 
So the pandemic has totally changed the way I view travel. I mean, I was already sort of starting to even assess my own relationship with it Mm -hmm. prior to the pandemic. And so one thing I sought out and which actually prompted my move to New York is I wanted to travel less distance because going to Europe twice a month from L.A. was just Mm -hmm. really, really unsustainable. But, you know, it is one of those hard things where it's like, I feel like I'm doing my dream job and traveling the world was always part of my bigger dream that I never thought was attainable. I think now, given everything, like traveling with more intention, traveling Mm. less but with more purpose is something that I really want to do moving forward. Mm. Before, I was saying yes to every press trip just because I had the energy and the curiosity. But I'm realizing that, you know, like having a more sedentary lifestyle has its benefits. It's the processing. It's you do get a lot out of out of being able to have breathing time. So true. Yeah. Great answer. I liked <laughs> and subscribed. Thank you. <laughs> but you know, it took a really long time to get here. It was like, I mean, it's been 10 months of having no option of leaving, really. Mm. Like the wall that Trump built is actually around the US where we can't leave. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, the the ripple does go further than you think it does. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question for you. Mm. Um, as one of the first generation, first generation influencers in, in the digital space, mm. what have you noticed has been the biggest shift in the industry? I think um, ulterior motive. Because like you said before, we didn't do it for money when we started. Even at some point when we did monetize it, I think the, the technology around monetiza- monet- monetization <laughs> um, <laughs> wasn't about you do this for money. It wasn't even that. It was almost like, uh, you can use affiliate links. Do you remember reward style? Like you just get like 5% of the sales. So you put it in anyway, because I I know some people made bank out of (laughs) affiliate tracking and linking and such, but, um, I didn't see it as like a, like an end all solution. Uh, it wasn't definitely wasn't like a career for me yeah but I think now when people start their Instagrams they almost have this sort of like career path building motive uh, when they start an account the ulterior motive is a bit different the obviously the style changes I think styles just you know it's it's very trend-led something trendy right now will probably not be trendy in two years time or six months time let's be honest very sad truth but at the end of the day, the reasons why people get onto doing the influencing, let's say, uh, which is an odd word as well, because it's such a broad stroke. But yeah, the, the motive is very different right now. So we live in a time of fleeting attention spans, and it does feel that a lot of digital content is created for rapid fire consumption. How mm. do you cut through the noise? It's so hard. Um, the pandemic has helped. <laughs> Because you see when people are pushed into a corner and their true personality kind of comes out and their true character comes out. And that that I've really found interesting to see. Because when everything was the same, when everyone was invited to a press trip and everyone was expected to go to Paris for Fashion Week or Milan or whatever, the content was very similar. Right now, because we were kind of forced to do our own things in our own bubbles, it's quite interesting seeing how the clarity of someone's character come out. Uh, so that's that's um, how I how I saw uh, through the noise. I suppose I didn't. Th- yeah. That wasn't me personally cutting through the noise, but 
I think it's interesting to see that right now we come from a time where we looked at trees, individual trees in a forest, whereas right now we're we're more inclined to look at the forest, if you know what I mean. Like it's yeah. um, 10 second content, but altogether does it build a brand or does that era of Instagram like nine grid, what kind of messaging does that tell <laughs> yeah yeah it, i mean it's i don't know if it's as straightforward as that but i think the best way of kind of approaching this and without sort of being too bitter about it all is just to say okay so right now if we posted let's say nine nine to 15 photos in a blog post that we it took like what five hours to curate and write um, yeah. then we have to kind of expand that time scale to a couple days so that we see what their curation of the of their messaging is. Some people don't obviously don't go by this sort of pattern of uploading, but it's it's been interesting seeing people's journeys like that in a sort of a more macro level, which is a, a lot more effort than I would like to <laughs> put into yeah. Instagram. And I want to explore the concept of longevity just because I think you know, at least from from what I gather, you've had such an incredibly fulfilling and long career in the fashion industry and digital space. Mm. What are the most important skills to hone for building longevity if someone were to start out on social media right now? Not to sound like a like an old person. <laughs> I would say integrity is is really the key right now. Like you said, building relationships and having these sustainable, yeah, sustainable relationships with brands, with other uh, members of the industry, with other influencers as well, that creates your foundation that you build on top of. And also when you're rising in the ladder, as much as I hate to think that it's a ladder, if you're not kind to people on the ladder, when, when you're coming down, you're going to have a bad time as well. And I think you can already see the product of that of people who may have not done that kind of management very well from the beginning okay this is maybe coming from a very bitter note but I find that the people that I subscribe to and interested in in their story still are people who are still kind humble and genuine about their their intentions and, and their content as well and I find that without that through all the the noise and the fluff I think that's the only thing that ensures and guarantees longevity good parenting olivia i think that's the best <laughs> good parenting yes yeah, thanks mom it all and dad comes down to, exactly it all comes down to mom and dad exactly doesn't everything <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but i love that about foundations and i mean i feel like i was really lost in the beginning um mm. and my blog was genuinely an exploration of figuring out my own style, my own voice, which is mm. embarrassing because I wish I had a really developed vision mm. instead of having really embarrassing pictures of me from 10 years ago floating around oh. the internet. <laughs> so this is the advice I wish I would have had 10 years ago. Mm, it's but, maybe you shouldn't wear mm. those Jeffrey Campbellitas because <laughs> one day you're going to really regret it. But that's the thing, like you, you wouldn't be here unless you had all of that, you know, like, I, I don't think I would change a single thing. I didn't actually have enough, like, disposable income to even buy Jeffrey Campbell um, <laughs> boots. Uh, but, you know, I feel like I wouldn't change a single thing because 
I even like going back to my old blog <laughs> and uh, looking at photos from 2011, 2010, when I was like 20, 24, 23, and just knowing that, oh, I came from here. Like, it's it's good to, I'm, I'm, although I'm glad that I didn't have a Twitter account when I was 13, because how <laughs> dumb would that have sound, like, honestly? <laughs> or TikTok. <laughs> or TikTok, yes. Yep. So... As one of my favorite storytellers, what is the most important skill set to hone as a storyteller? Perspective is important. I think you, you, with perspective, you show, you see uh, that you're thinking ahead. You're not, you're not just trying to scratch the itch. You're laying out again foundations. So, how do you define authenticity? Authenticity needs to come from your own storytelling. It needs to, this is why I have this issue with the, the current shift in times. Um, it's that you and I, I can see that you wore Jeffrey Campbell Lolita, what was it called? Lolita? Jeffrey Those Campbell Those fugly-ass boots. I actually never had them either because I could never afford it, but I just mm. remember the trend of the time. I had something by Jeffrey Campbell, but they were uglier than the Lita's. Do you remember they we were, were shredding our t-shirts because we wanted to look like Raquel Allegra or whatever? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> we all did that. And I know where you came from and what, how you developed and how your journey developed, right? For the past 10 years. And you know how um, mine developed. I know how Susie Bubbles developed, for instance. When someone just kind of crops up out of nowhere because of the algorithm, let's say, they got on the correct side of the algorithm, I find it really hard to know the story of how and where they come from in, in, in terms of like what kind of person are you and yeah yeah how, how do you see yourself in this industry of creativity etc how, how did you contribute how did you learn how did you fail how did you succeed etc like I, I love seeing that journey and I think that kind of adds to the authenticity of of just persistence if you know what I mean yeah. and I feel like persistence is sort of like the first badge uh, that you get in the the giant quest of authenticity in this um, in this industry, yeah. Because you know I'm not gonna go um, eat at a restaurant when the reviewer doesn't really eat out. You know what I mean? Like I don't. I need to know where you're coming from. Um, my like gripe with this industry is that I think a lot of people think of it as a very one-dimensional profession. Like you're not an influencer f to be an influencer. You're an influencer because you are a biologist, but with an interest in fashion. And how does that meld together? Or you are a mother of five. How does that melt with your interest in Hermes bags, for instance? Like I, I love seeing this kind of story around it and the context. And I think the yeah. context gives a lot of authenticity to what you're talking about. Otherwise, it's just like you're literally just talking for the sake of talking. And I don't really know where it's coming from. It's the full picture. It's the full story. Mm. It's creating the message behind it or revealing something beyond just promoting images, right? Mm, totally. One thing I've noticed is that you often use your platform as a microphone on global issues. <laughs> You know, in our industry that sometimes leans on staying apolitical, mm. why is it important to address these global events? As someone young, it's hard to understand that your, your role in society, what kind of puzzle piece you are in this role of society, and especially with Instagram where you focus on a niche of, let's say, fashion or luxury goods or being happy, good vibes, all of this. is, is you, you focus on a niche because it's... It's pleasant, it's fun, it's, it's uh, positive seeming, but 
as someone who's putting your voice out there, you, you need to understand that you are still a puzzle piece in this global issue that's happening around you. And without your input, you have no right to ask for anyone else's input about what you're trying to say, if, if, if I'm being clear here. Am I being clear? Yeah. I feel like the, the main advice is not to do everything, not to try to talk about everything at the same time or not to, not to just jump the gun on, on getting onto the bandwagon of, of talking about it. I think you need to find your own context within this topic so that your authenticity of your voice is stronger. Because I think, again, it's about context, isn't it? Like, I want to see that why it's disturbing you. I want to see how it affects your personal politics as well. People are on Instagram, on this platform, to be themselves. I don't think a lot of girls maybe don't know it yet, but in 10 years, just like we've had our sort of revelation, it is, it is a, a big journey because it's, it's a, quite a big chunk of our lives, right? When you start dedicating some, um, a lot of your time into something. If you don't uh, inject your personal context into the scenario, then, then what else, what other ways are there to talk about this? Have you experienced discrimination? Oh, uh, <laughs> I mean, not not to go in a very negative tone, but yes, it it you know you and I both know growing up as a yeah an Asian in a, a largely homogenous society is not the easiest thing, right? Even if it's microaggressions, really, at the end of the day, looking at it from a sort of a big picture point of point of view, we almost like embedded into our personalities to to kind of like brush it off our shoulders as we grow up, right? Yeah, and this is something that we should be kind of looking into ourselves and reflecting. Maybe we shouldn't be saying this and, and kind of turning it the other way around and saying, why are you, you know, causing this microaggression? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the only way I will ever understand how it feels, you know, how to inject myself into this situation. So I want to pivot topics for a little bit. And yes, please, I know thank that you. you <laughs> I know that you did a road trip through the U.S. Was it last year or the year mm-hmm, before? Mm-hmm. I think it was 2018, almost. almost. Yeah, 2018, what was, two years ago. What was, that, what was that road trip like? See, I did, a, I did the road trip in the West Coast. And a road trip, in essence, is very bubble-focused, isn't it? Like, it's, it's your own bubble. You don't really assimilate with the locals, local community as you go through these towns, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't find much, and also my husband is Polish and he's white, so it wasn't much of a, a big deal. Uh, obviously, like smaller towns, let's say in Utah, looked at me funny a little, but I also, growing up in Europe and also having that personality of, eh, you know, this happens all the time, maybe I didn't focus on that at all. Yeah, I, yeah. I am curious from your European point of view, mm. Because I feel like most people, you know, they visit the major cities in the U.S. Did traveling by car through the West Coast give you a different perspective of the U.S.? You definitely see the like a very harsh boundary between poverty and wealth. That that was something quite shocking, especially in outskirts of L.A. or even in New York. We did a a road trip. I know you've just been to the Philip. Johnson Glass House in Connecticut, right? Yeah. Yeah, we were doing a trip from New York to Connecticut in a car, and I was so um, shocked to see the the difference in neighborhoods, 
uh, that's very different from Europe. Then in London, especially, the wealth is very well sort of like it's it's assimilated within each other. I mean, obviously, you see council houses amongst beautiful sort of two million pound um, South Kensington houses, and they but they they are still in the same block, so people still merge. They still they still you know interact with each other. This community is formed of different um, wealth groups. But in the yeah. U.S., that was very apparent. The divide was very apparent. And obviously, the racial divide was very apparent. That was something that was very shocking for me. Have there been any trips you've taken that has changed the way that you see the world? Obviously, the U.S. trip, it's it's a, from a visual and also just a nature perspective. It's so much more grand than I've ever seen in Europe. So in that sense, yeah, the, the road trip itself was definitely an eye-opener. Perhaps... I did do one, one, it was a press trip. So, and I also don't consider press trips as travel because I think you probably agree with me here. Uh, when you go somewhere for two days and you have a itinerary and then you hop back on a plane, you come back, you don't feel like you've been there like, <laughs> at all. The hotel looks the same. It's the same. Like, And I feel like when you're not planning out your own itineraries mm. as well, as lovely as it is, because this is you know, it is a massive privilege to be able to go on these Absolutely. trips for work. Yeah. You, there's a missing context piece, which is sometimes someone will ask me, where did you go in Sicily? And I can't recall a single place I've been to because, you know, you're just shuttled front and back. And even though it is so beautiful, you know, you're there for two days and Mm. it feels like a, a blink of an eye. Mm, absolutely. I remember going to Japan and um, th- I think the they were trying to impress us with French food. <laughs> so, I remember how going to Japan and just having French food. Oh no. Yeah, the Asian fascination with French cuisine is yeah. so is so sad. Like I, was... I remember going to Hong Kong and I stayed at the upper house and they told me with pride that mm. they they only had European food in this beautiful landmark hotel. And I was oh, so confused no. because uh-huh. all of their guests are flying in from all over the world to yeah, eat yeah. Hong Kong dim sum. And yeah. the only thing I could order was a croissant. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, I went to Beijing and the same thing happened. They're like, oh, we'll, we'll take you to this hipster um, food where you can have shakshuka. I'm like, I'm not having shakshuka in Beijing. I want Chinese food. <laughs> Yeah. No. Th- so there's that like, d- like you, you travel a lot, but you're not really traveling. Um, but I, I was in Azerbaijan for for one press trip, and that was really one night. And you can see the wealth, but in such stark contrast. Uh, yeah, contrast. There you go. Contrast with poverty on the street. So that was that was really eye opening as well. Like. Yeah, seeing that kind of wealth doesn't really yeah mesh well with the history. Like that, that just kind of shows like the the context matters more than absolutely yeah wealth and or fame or anything. What was the first big trip that you personally took? Oh wow, bringing out the big guns. Good question. Yeah, road trip, and it wasn't even that aspirational. It was just up the Pacific Coast Highway. It was just the fact that basically you grow up in, you don't grow up, but you, you live in London your entire 20s. You don't drive. And then just having that freedom, it was just such a big privilege. Like the, the fact that you can decide your the decide the pace of your journey and where you go and all of this, like it was just such a, a freedom that that kind of comes with the American land. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's so beautiful, Shinny. <laughs> Thank you. Especially on your yeah, happy birthday. Especially on your on the words that you you choose to emphasize. <laughs> <laughs> the land. It's a true yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's freedom. <laughs> one last question: mm-hmm. What is one place that you look forward to visiting, and why? A boring answer, but Seoul, like Seoul, still has, my soul is in Seoul. I don't know. I, I think I left it. There. <laughs> that is the quote. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's the quote. Put it on a T-shirt. My soul, soul is in Seoul. That would sell very well in tourist shops. Um, yeah, fifteen bucks. Um, yeah, no. I, I every chance there is, anyone says, where do you miss the most? Where do you, where would you go after this Panny D is over? Did you know people are calling it the Panny D? Where either. are they calling it the panty tea? <laughs> the London boroughs, the kids, the youths are calling it the panty tea. Anyway, once the panty tea is over, I would like to go back to Seoul. Mm. To reconnect with your soul. Yes, exactly. But here I am, a, a soulless a little shell of a woman. Tanning, tanning in Copenhagen? Tanning in Copenhagen by my um, Netflix screen. When it turns white, I go, you know, I tan better. So, yeah. <laughs> That's why I keep it on. <laughs> well, Shanit, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I'm really happy thank we you. got to chat. And I'm so sorry for making you sound older than you are. You are not. Well, you're a young spring chicken. We just were precocious and we started our blogs at a really early age. We did. Yes, we did. Let's let's blame it on the the yeah, the blog. Thank you so much to Shinny for joining us today on the Art of Travel podcast. To find Shinny's work, you can find her on Instagram at shinny.park or at Cube Collective. The Art of Travel is created and hosted by Olivia Lopez, produced by Jason Stewart with music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you then.